So I had a, um, a kind of a, a crisis of, of confidence as to whether uh, I, I was up to snuff because I, I wasn't doing mathematical modeling myself. Uh, and I was interested in mental representations, not, not just not fitting data. So when I was a freshman at UCLA, I took a course that was a survey course, sort of a great books course in Western philosophy, saying, okay, here's all the sort of, you know, the major works that it's like, uh, you know, Thomas Hobbes, Rousseau, John Locke, all that sort of stuff. And what I found really interesting in the course was the theories that these philosophers had about human nature. And uh, what I found less interesting and what I was sort of confused by was why the twin interests of all of these philosophers was, on the one hand, human nature, and then on the other hand, essentially the structure of governance. How, how should we come up with a government uh, that makes the best possible society? And that was, for whatever reason, a question that I just found less interesting. And, you know, that's, that's probably why I went on to study psychology and cognitive science and political science or economics is, is just because of my natural inclination towards that side of things. But I couldn't, I couldn't really put my finger on why um, it was really an across-the-board phenomenon that these were, out of all of the things in the world, these were the two things that every classical philosopher was concerned with. And then one day it sort of hit me um, that there's actually a deep connection here. And it, it's essentially this, that you can't describe human nature fully without describing the system that it's a part of. And so if you are interested in human nature, then in order to describe that, you also have to describe the society that that human lives in and vice versa. If you want to talk about how to structure society, you have to have a pretty damn good picture of what human nature is actually like in order to influence it in a positive way. And that was a really big moment for me um, as, you know, as obvious as that may or may not, you know, sort of seem as an insight. Uh, it was really something that hit me. And I think what one of the many things that impresses me about uh, the guest that I have on today is that I think that he does that better than uh, any other current intellectual that I know. Uh, Steven Pinker, I, you know, really the central thesis of his body of work is about what is human nature? What does it look like? And so perhaps, uh, you know, the same inclination that I have to prioritize that question, but clearly that has taken him to the place of asking what is happening in society, what should be happening in society, how should we structure uh, the larger system that we're a part of. And you can see in his work, like you can see uh, in you know people like John Locke, uh, Thomas Hobbes, that those questions are in the long term inextricable from one another. And uh, that is something that is really cool to see in his, uh, you know, the books that he has written and the ideas that he's come up with. Um, 
I, uh, at first, is my first interaction with Steven Pinker was when I was, again, back in undergraduate, I was the president of the Cognitive Science Student Association there, and we were putting on a, uh, you know, a conference, and I was like, okay, let's, get, let's try and get some speakers. Well, who's a cognitive scientist? I know, well, um, well, there's this guy who writes, you know, popular books, Steven Pinker. So I, I as a naive undergraduate, I email Steven Pinker, like, hey, um, I know you live in Boston, but we're throwing this, you know, you know, 50 person conference in L.A. Do you want to come be the keynote speaker? And I, uh, you know, shoot off this email. And then I, I swear to goodness, less than 30 minutes later, I get the nicest reply um, saying something to the effect of, Dear Cody, thank you so much for email. Um, I get a lot of speaking requests, however, and so uh, I must unfortunately decline. But the the fact that he wrote me a nice response as opposed to sorry can't do it and the fact that he was able to respond to me so quickly so there was something about that that stuck stuck with me where it's like oh this is how people who are on top of their shit operate they um treat other people with respect um both in the way they they what they say to them and then the promptness with which they with the respect their time and there was something about that that stick with me uh, so that was my first encounter with, with Pinker, but, uh, there were a number since then after I uh, started working at Harvard. And the first was that, um, you know, so of course I was in the psychology department there and, and I knew Steven Pinker also in the psychology department there. And uh, so I was wondering when I was going to run into him on campus. Then one day I was, I was wandering towards William James Hall, which is the psychology department there. And then I see this figure moving kind of kind of bobbing along the the surface of the um the, the the brick road throughout the harvard campus and the first thing i see is uh the the clod of gray hair bobbing and i sort of had this moment where i freeze and i'm like is oh my god is could it be and then you sort of see him come into focus you know it's all hair first and then you start to see the the person that's attached to the hair and i'm like oh my god that's stephen pinker uh and so that was my first uh pinker sighting in person like that uh it was is uh very very much a a hair um centric moment and then the the next one after that was that i actually was at a lecture and he uh he's also usually he's off doing other things but then I, I saw him at one of these lectures, and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna go sit next to Stephen Pinker. I don't care if I'm, you know, nobody, and he doesn't, he didn't, you know, whatever. And so I sit next to him, um, and I probably struck struck a little conversation, whatever. But what I noticed was, damn, this guy is wearing cowboy boots, and uh, they were pretty slick, black. They've got this nice detailing on them, looked very high quality. And what I noticed every other time that I saw him was that he wears. Uh, I don't know if it's the exact same pair, but we'll look pretty damn close to being the same pair of cowboy boots every time. And I was like, man, that is some baller shit right there. And so you will hear more, lots more about cowboy boots uh, in this conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's several other times that I've run into him around Boston. One was, oddly enough, on a plane from Seattle back to Boston. Uh, I didn't actually work up the nerve to talk to him because I was so taken aback. I had no idea. It was just completely random around the same flight. But then now uh, the other thing is, and uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, Steve uh, taking the time to listen to this will, will be surprised to hear this, but I, I actually uh, sort of uh, I was, I was wandering around 
downtown Boston one day. And then I see Stephen and Rebecca, who you'll also hear quite a bit about in the conversation. And they're taking pictures of things and sculptures and whatever one takes pictures of in downtown Boston. And uh, I grab my girlfriend by the arm and I'm like, whoa, oh my God, it's happening again. It's a pinker sighting. And so we sort of just follow him around for like 30 minutes from a pretty far distance, uh, which is not t- not trying to talk to him. Just like, what is what is what does Pinker do on an afternoon when he's not doing the highfalutin academic? What does this guy do? And we followed him around and we eventually lost him in the North End. Uh, but that was that was a pretty scintillating uh, uh, Pinker sighting right there. So uh, it was fun to be able to sit down and have a direct, non-stalkerish, uh, non-rejection-based, not exclusively cowboy boot-oriented conversation. Um, and uh, I think uh, you know there were there were a few topics in here that we got into, which are are perhaps non-standard Pinker topics. And I think uh, even people who are familiar with his work will be will be fascinated to hear that. And uh, in case you uh, don't know, his his official title is the John Stone Family Professor in the Psychology Department at Harvard. And you know I could name his books and, and all that sort of stuff, but uh, chances are you you know the ones you like and the ones you don't. And uh, you know if I were to name all of them, well the intro is already long enough. We don't have time for that. So at any rate, uh, I'm very excited to bring to you uh, this conversation uh, between me. I'm Cody Commerce, and uh, my guest today on Cognitive Evolution, Stephen Pinker. Well, so the first thing I want to talk about is cowboy boots. Uh, how many pairs do you own? Can you give us a Can you give us a rough a rough idea of if we opened your closet and looked looked through your shoe collection? What would we What would we find? Well, I can't compete with my friend Jerry Coyne, the evolutionary biologist, who has more than a hundred pairs. Not not quite in Imelda Marcos territory, but uh, but challenging her. Uh, I think I have uh, I think I have five pairs, uh, and. Um, my the most recent is a uh, custom pair from Texas Traditions in uh, Austin, Texas, where I snagged an appointment, thanks to my uh, graduate school friend David Birdsong, who's a professor at UT Austin and who's a friend of Lee Miller and his wife Carlin, who uh, have a, a uh, artisanal cowboy boot business. So that that's the pair that I'm proudest of. Yeah, you're often lauded for your hair, and I think one of the underappreciated aspects of your of your career and and, and your uh, your body of work and what you stand for are those boots. So, when did you start wearing them on a regular basis, and what was there? Is there a story there? Uh, in um, a long time ago, 1982, I was uh, driving from uh, my uh, from Palo Alto to uh, Cambridge when I was transitioning from Stanford to MIT. We passed through Sheridan, Wyoming, and uh, wandered into a Western wear store, and I bought a, a nice pair of boots there, and I just like the way they, they feel. They uh, give you an extra inch or so of height, and for, for whatever reason, I feel that I, I walk more uh, efficiently and more, uh, more confidently, and I just like, like the feel of them. Uh, and as they, they will tell you in Texas, they are appropriate for uh, any style of dress, including uh, formal wear with a tuxedo. That's hilarious. I love that. I think you're probably the only guy who wanders around the Harvard campus with a pair of cowboy boots on. So I, I suspect that's true. In my experience, so far it is. 
Um, okay, so there's something, uh, there's a passage, I think it was in Sense of Style, that it was essentially to the effect of, um, I liked the author's prose so much that I married her, um, in, in reference to your wife, Rebecca. Um, so I want to, I want to break that down a little bit. Um, maybe, can you, well, so, okay, so maybe start from the beginning. So were, were you sitting there reading like a book? And then your palms started to get a little moist, and then you were like, "Hey, I got to, I got to reach out." What did that look like? <laughs> I first heard of uh, Rebecca Goldstein's uh, Rebecca Goldstein and her books when shortly after her first novel came out, *The Mind Body Problem*. It had been uh, spoken about because it was set in academia, in, in the world of philosophy. I mean, I, I'm not a philosopher, but I'm a cognitive psychologist, of course. But still, it was being talked about. There was uh, some gossipy speculation as to whether it was a roman a clay and who the characters were. But I didn't, this was in the uh, mid-1980s, but I didn't actually get around to reading it until uh, the 90s. Uh, it immediately appealed to me. Um, but the, uh, because it was, it was funny, it was brainy, it was uh, entertaining, it was moving. This is a, 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 a novel whose protagonist is a uh, graduate student in philosophy uh, writing a thesis on the mind-body problem who has her own mind-body problem, uh, namely uh, which is more important in her life and which is more important in a man. And the, in the novel, she uh, falls in love with a a uh, brilliant mathematician uh, who uh, then is faced with the uh, dilemma of many mathematicians that as they age and their, uh, their, their, their brain power starts to decline, they uh, lose the, uh, the only tool with which they can do research, namely sheer, sheer uh, thought and brain power. Anyway, the, um, uh, and the novel has uh, many uh, excursions into issues in, in uh, philosophy of mind. Uh, Years later, I was approached by a magazine called Seed. I don't know if it still exists, but its aim is to bring science and uh, art and culture together. And they had a series of dialogues and invited me to have a dialogue with someone in the arts that I admired. So I suggested Rebecca. They, I uh, uh, went down to New York. They put us in a room at the Algonquin Hotel, home of the famous uh, round table of uh, various wits and bon vivants and literary intellectuals in the 1930s, uh, put us in a room with a, a kind of cheesy Radio Shack uh, cassette tape recorder uh, and just told us to talk for, for, uh, for four hours and uh, uh, they would, they would uh, transcribe it and make a print feature out of the, uh, the audio. Well, I, I was a little dubious about this tape recorder and indeed when they came in four hours later, they uh, apologized that nothing had been recorded, uh, so that the, uh, <laughs> the, the recorder had malfunctioned uh, and just begged us, could we possibly stay an extra day and, and uh, re redo our, our scintillating dialogue? Um, so we did, and, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> um, so have you just been reliving that same date over and over again? For uh, yes, a kind of a benevolent Groundhog Day. Uh, there's another element to the story, though, that we, we had actually been in contact, uh, in, in addition to my having enjoyed her novel. It turned out that she uh, had, had read uh, a couple of my books, and we discovered this because we discovered our connection when uh, Rebecca uh, picked up a copy of my book, Words and Rules, and 
looked in the index for Stephen Jay Gould, because I had been having a debate with a famous evolutionary biologist in the pages of the New York Review of Books around that time, and she was curious if there was any discussion of that in the book. Um, <clears throat> her eyes alighted on the G's and found her own name rather than uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, followed the reference and found that I had used an example of an irregular verb, which was the subject of this book, Words and Rules, that she had used in uh, one of her more obscure novels, which I had also read, The Late Summer Passion of a Woman of Mind, realized that uh, I, I must be familiar with her, uh, with her writing and had uh, contacted me at a time at which she had uh, lived in Cambridge. So we had that, uh, it was a kind of literary romance. Each of us had read each other's works before we met in person. You know, I'm sure there's a lesson in here for the Tinder generation somewhere. That, uh, <laughs> an alternative opportunity is getting set up with a potential partner for some sort of literary discourse, philosophical discourse. But uh, well, it, it is true that a courtship needn't begin with, uh, uh, with, with uh, photos or even with a face-to-face -face meeting, but it can begin as a kind of a epistolary romance, which it did in our case. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I want to dive into your sort of uh, much earlier career experience. So I know, I know that you got your BA in psychology from McGill, and that was uh, around 1976, give or take. Um, but before that, you got a diploma of college studies from Dawson College, uh, I think three years before that. So what what, what exactly What's is What's the deal with that? Yeah, what, what is that? That is, in, uh, I, I grew up in Montreal, in, and the Quebec educational system, higher educational system, um, uh, works where you, you graduate from high, high school in grade 11. Then there is a, a two-year college system which mixes people who plan to go on to university with people in more uh, professional degrees like x-ray technician and uh, accounting and bookkeeping, um, free, free college for two years and then three years of uh, university. So I entered that system shortly after it was initiated and Dawson College, which is still is in existence, is uh, one of those two-year colleges. It's in the English half of the, uh, of this, the system. They call it a Cégep Collège de l'Enseignement Général et Pratique, uh, college for uh, teaching general and uh, practical teaching. All right. So when you were at that point, did you know that you wanted to study psychology? When was, was there um, uh, a point where that sort of became clear to you? It became clear in my second year at Dawson College. Um, I uh, had an interest in, in uh, human nature partly because it had a political dimension at that time. I was a little too young for the, um, the, 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 the great uh, events of the, of the 60s, the student protests and so on. But in the air, there were debates on what was the, how we should revolutionize society. What is the best political system? Should we be anarchists? Should we be uh, communists? Uh, and uh, these political systems depended on implicit theories of human nature. Are we naturally uh, cooperative or do we need uh, money and other ways of policing reciprocity? Are we naturally peaceful? Uh, these were in the air, they were uh, being debated. And, and uh, so uh, if you were politically interested, it naturally shaded into an interest in, in uh, theories of uh, what makes us tick. 
uh, an interest that I only pursued in writing uh, decades later, but it got me intrigued. Uh, I sampled many disciplines that um, deal with issues in, in human nature, philosophy and sociology and anthropology and psychology. And I, I kind of had a vague uh, inkling that I wanted to learn about the great systems of thought of structuralism and existentialism and Marshall McLuhan and Claude Lady Strauss. And I found, uh, even though I, I, I was intrigued, but I found most of them just kind of too, too wispy, too kind of airy-fairy. Uh, there was like a lot of verbiage and I just didn't feel that I was uh, understanding anything. Psychology for me hit the, hit the sweet spot. It was about big issues of human nature, but the theories were uh, concrete enough so that I could understand exactly what they said. They had, a, um, they, they had the promise of being testable. There was lab work that, that one could do, or at least uh, empirical investigations. And so it felt intellectually much more satisfying. Around that time also, I, there was a, a story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine on this uh, relatively new intellectual that was taking the, the world by storm, Noam Chomsky. This was, I think, around 1972. Uh, and here too, he seemed like you know an intellectual capital I, but on the other hand, really studying something in, uh, substantive. Uh, and when in in my my second year at uh, in college, when I discovered that there was this new field called cognitive psychology, which had um, uh, laboratory investigations, but also bore on. Uh, theories of generative linguistics and transformational grammar from uh, from from Chomsky, and uh, computer modeling and artificial intelligence. Uh, that there were, I, I started to read some of the uh, writings by the the uh, founders of the cognitive revolution, George Miller, and uh, Roger Brown, and uh, Eric Lenneberg. Um, uh, Herb Simon and Alan Newell, and I got tremendously excited by this new thing called cognitive psychology. And then when I discovered that McGill's psychology department, which had a um, distinguished history because uh, it was the home of D.O. Hebb, the, uh, had a kind of new career as a neural network modeler, but was a, a kind of grandfather of the entire field of psychology. He, he wrote a book called The Organization of Behavior that, that my mother studied when she was an undergraduate in the early 1950s. And uh, Hebb was still around as an emeritus professor when I was an undergraduate. Uh, Hebb's own style was much more in the, in the tradition of associationism, uh, something of a precursor of, of connectionism, and, and of course the Hebb synapse is still one of the dominant models of how plasticity is implemented at the level of neural circuitry. But Hebb was interested in every aspect of psychology. He wrote an introductory psychology textbook. The department at McGill was um, eclectic and lively. And it, to get, getting back to your question, it uh, did have a track in cognitive psychology. And uh, when I, as soon as I looked through the brochure and saw that track, I knew that was what I had to study. Uh, it just seemed so uh, exciting and fruitful. I went to a, um, a kind of a, a, a social tea for um, to, to uh, introduce students to the, the faculty and uh, spoke to Mike Corbelis, who I'm still in touch with, a, a brilliant cognitive psychologist 
uh, who would return to the University of Auckland. And uh, he just mentioned almost in, in passing that he thought cognitive psychology was a, uh, a growth area in psychology, which it, which it was indeed at the time. And in an area, era, uh, as like today, uh, with a lot of anxiety about the job market, let me just let this ring. Um, uh, the prospect of a field that was growing and where there could be employment at the uh, end of the tunnel uh, had, had some appeal as well. Yeah, certainly that forecast had a, a bit of perspicacity to it. Um, so uh, one thing that I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear about is when did you first meet Stephen Coslin? He, I was um, at the end of my first year at uh, Harvard in graduate school. Uh, and um, in, in, in retrospect, it probably was not a wise choice because uh, Harvard had actually let go all of its cognitive psychologists. At, Wait, so uh, so what was not a wise choice? Oh, go, going to Harvard. <laughs> I mean, it, it worked out in the end, needless to say. But I've, I've had a, uh, I can't complain about my career. But at the end of my first year, it was I, I thought I'd made a horrible mistake. Uh, Harvard, uh, until recently, did not have a tenure track. It's faculty, it would hire junior faculty, and um, uh, I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you a somewhat ribald story after I finish this answer, uh, that uh, it would hire them for up to eight years, and then if there was a job opening uh, in the department at the senior level, they were welcome to compete with the rest of the world, but there was no uh, promotion track to a uh, tenured professor. At the time that I went, they had uh, basically let go all of their cognitive psych junior cognitive psychologists. They were rooted in the tradition of um, psychophysics and mathematical psychology. Uh, this was, uh, um, uh, I was in, <laughs> I'm still in the building called William James Hall, and I fondly recall a remark from William James that the study of psychophysics proves that it is impossible to bore a German. Uh, <laughs> is a, a rigorous field, but it dealt with uh, fairly arcane mathematical models of uh, laboratory phenomena. I remember my first year, my first week at, at Harvard in the seminar on sensation and perception, the topic was going to be what's new in Weber's law. Now, Weber's law, which is that the increment the, of uh, intensity of a stimulus that can be detected is a constant fraction of the uh, overall intensity of the stimulus. Delta I over I is a constant. I thought that had kind of been settled in, you know, 1880, but uh, they, it, the uh, the seminar was going to be on the, the latest word in, in uh, uh, Weber's law, and I thought, oh my God, I've gone to the wrong place. Anyway, the fortunately though, they did. There was a slot for a, um, a junior person in cognitive psychology, and um, the uh, the the. Uh, person they hired was Stephen Costlin, who at the time was an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins. And uh, he and I hit it off immediately. And uh, we had a, uh, I got my PhD in visual imagery, then a very hot topic in um, uh, cognitive psychology. There was a raging debate on the nature of mental imagery. Uh, and then uh, we became colleagues in the faculty of Harvard and uh, friends ever since. So what did you, when you got to Harvard, what did you, what did you think you were doing? What did you, what did you expect? And um, did you, did you have a plan for what you were going to study or were you just sort of following the, the leads in front of you? 
I, I, all I knew is that I wanted to do something in, in uh, cognitive psychology. And uh, at the um, language was an interest, not because uh, I pursued a degree in linguistics uh, by any means, but, uh, but because it was uh, an area of, uh, it was one of the most amazing things that the human mind can do. And it was an area where there was a, a very detailed, rigorous uh, theory, set of theories that could be uh, examined, how, uh, given that we, at the time, seemed to understand so much about how language worked, it, it uh, set up a, a, a kind of a, a benchmark, a, uh, a, an end state for what language acquisition in children had to culminate in. Uh, so we could, uh, I thought it would be uh, a fruitful way of studying language acquisition to pose the question, uh, given that we know what a language is at in an adult, uh, what's the minimum machinery that would be necessary for a child to get there, given exposure to, uh, to input. But uh, anything having to do with mental representation um, and uh, uh, computational models appealed to me. And the innovation in Steve Costland's program of research at the time, compared to other people who had been studying imagery, like Alan Pavio and uh, Roger Shepard, was that um, uh, Steve had a, a computational model of imagery. It was ahead of its time. It, uh, there was a, a kind of a graphics representation, an array, or, um, array, an array of pixels, although the, even the word pixel, I don't think, uh, existed at the time, uh, generated from a, uh, a long-term um, knowledge base that was organized um, as a semantic network, as a, as a set of propositions. And so it, uh, I thought, attained the um, advantages of um, an image representation, namely the ability to see patterns that had not been encoded at the time of uh, visual experience, the original um, for formation of a memory. You could see new patterns. But also it satisfied the critiques of Zen and Politian and uh, <clears throat> a number of philosophers that images could not simply consist of um, uh, unstructured pixel maps. But the fact that he took the study of imagery to the level of computational modeling meant that it satisfied my desire to study cognition at the level of explicit mental representations and processes, <clears throat> rather than just vague metaphors and adjectives. Is it holistic? Is it analog? Um, that, that kind of language just was unsatisfying. In the same way as my interest in language was frustrated by discussions that said, is language acquisition a, an active process or is it a passive process? Is it innate? Is there learning? <clears throat> just these one word characterizations were not the level at which I wanted to study anything in, in that cognition. I, I really wanted to be able to look on, on the piece of paper or on the screen of what the mental representations consisted of, what, what are the processes that uh, formed them, that transformed them, uh, that uh, manipulated them, and both in, uh, it, it could have been a, a number of things, it could have been long-term long memory, it could have been, uh, it ended up being imagery and language because those are the things that I uh, pretty much found happening at Harvard at the time. Mm, right. Um... So while you were sort of sorting through a lot of that stuff, were there any 
sort of big sources of, of personal uncertainty during your graduate work or even times where you thought about, oh, this might not work out for me? Was there anything like that that came up for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing is, as I mentioned, it, the, the uncertainty about the job prospects of a, a PhD are, are nothing new. This was the uh, era of the um, kind of the, the great bust after the post-Sputnik boom. So in the 1960s and early 1970s, the departments had kind of uh, clogged up with young tenure-track faculty who were hired in the wake of the uh, Sputnik panic. Uh, then there was a, a great recession. There was also an economic, uh, several economic recessions because of the uh, oil shocks of 1973 and 1979, uh, and um, stories in the New York Times about PhDs who had were uh, got jobs driving taxis or working as a, an assistant to a sheriff. Uh, my, my parents discouraged me from uh, pursuing a PhD. They, they said, why don't you just become a psychiatrist? Uh, that way you can do everything that a PhD in psychology can do, plus your guaranteed employment, uh, which wasn't a bad argument, but I, I did uh, go, go my own way, figuring that uh, if I was unemployed at the age of 25, I could always apply to medical school then. So there was that source of anxiety. Uh, there was a second source of anxiety coming from the fact that I had gone from an undergraduate uh, program in cognitive psychology, where I worked uh, quite satisfyingly with um, Al Bregman, who I'm, I'm still in touch with, who, who had a, a lab that studied uh, auditory scene analysis. That is how the uh, uh, how we organize the uh, complex composite waveform that comes into our ears from a variety of sound sources, um, uh, producing sound simultaneously, and we do the segregation so that we can tell the voice from the music playing in the background, from the hum of the, um, of the uh, ventilator, from, from the sound of wind. Uh, I, I enjoyed that very much. It was one of my first publications. But then when I uh, went to Harvard and it was um, uh, mathematical psychophysics, uh, I was made to feel uh, kind of like that cognitive psychology was, was kind of soft and squishy by their standards. Um, that it was uh, my, my advisors, uh, my teachers, David Green and Duncan Luce, uh, kind of had the, the mindset, it's still, it's still present in, in large parts of experimental psychology, that unless you're doing mathematical modeling, you might as well be doing social work. So uh, you know, and it's not that I, it's not that I, I disliked or, or was, was uh, intimidated by math by any means. I, I, uh, I, I'm good at math, and I, I took math courses as a as a, an undergraduate, but not at their level. And it was not the kind of um, theorizing, kind of fit, basically fitting curves to uh, data uh, that, that really appealed to me. Uh, so I had a, um, a kind of a, a crisis of, of confidence as to whether uh, I, I was up to snuff because I, I wasn't doing mathematical modeling myself. Uh, and I was interested in Mental representations, not not just not fitting data. Um, fortunately, um, mathematical psychology was kind of in contraction, if I can uh, pass judgment. And cognitive psychology was expanding; it was embracing cognitive, it was expanding to cognitive science, uh, encompassing artificial intelligence and linguistics and philosophy of mind. The uh, Sloan Foundation. Uh, with uh, its, its money from uh, General Motors a century before, 
had decided to embark on a program of funding of uh, cognitive science, this new field. They set up cognitive science centers, they endowed uh, faculty lines, and uh, fortunately, uh, I, I, had, I had bet on a, on a good horse, despite fears that I was uh, going into this squishy area by, by the standards of the mathematicians. Yeah, that's interesting. So it, it kind of, uh, you just stuck the, the core, stuck to your guns of what you were interested in, and uh, it ended up being uh, a good bet in terms of uh, following cognitive psychology and that sort of stuff. It was, and I, I sort of shifted out of the psychophysics lab, and I worked with Steve Koslin. I also, um, I took a course with Reed Hastie, now at the University of Chicago, uh, another young cognitive psychologist at, at the time. And uh, again, the uh, kind of fortuitous accident led me on uh, what became a major career path. Uh, Reed had uh, assigned to his uh, graduate seminar on thinking a short mathematical article on uh, learnability, on what actually does learning consist of in a mathematical sense? How can we uh, characterize it as an abstract problem? How do we specify the minimum conditions for learning, uh, in particularly learning a language to succeed? That is, you've got a abstract learner, uh, doesn't know anything about the uh, language that, that, uh, that he or she has to learn other than it falls into some broad mathematical class like the class of all Turing machines or the class of all uh, uh, context-free grammars, the class of all um, Markov uh, model, models, um, is exposed to a set of sentences drawn from the language and has to uh, arrive at a consistent guess as to what the language is. It's uh, computationally strictly speaking impossible simply because there's with uh, if languages are infinite then uh, there's also an infinite number of languages that are consistent with any finite sample of sentences um, here uh, kind of a, a, an approximation of the child's experience of hearing sentences from their parents uh, but uh, how can you set conditions on when a learning algorithm can be said to succeed Anyway, it was a short, short paper. It was, uh, fortunately, I had taken a course in mathematical linguistics and theory of computation as an undergraduate, uh, and it wasn't that hard to understand. Uh, I wrote a paper on this mathematical model by a, a, an obscure theoretician named E.M. Gold. Coincidentally, I was taking a, another graduate seminar on language acquisition taught by Jill de Villiers, a student of, formerly a student of Roger Brown's. And I, I put the two together, that how, how can we use results from the mathematics of uh, learning and uh, more generally computationally explicit models of learning to organize data on, on a children's language, to pose coherent questions, what, what are kids do, trying to do when they try to speak? Uh, and what is the, the minimum amount of learning machinery that would allow them to succeed? Uh, that is, they, they listen to sentences for a couple of years, they end up uh, talking a blue streak, they're being competent conversational partners in uh, English or Japanese or Yiddish or uh, whatever the language happens to be. Uh, what's, how, how do they do it? What's the, uh, what's the minimum, minimum necessary? Uh, and so that was a, um, fortunately, again, I, I hit on a topic 
like as with imagery, which was the uh, hot topic of controversy in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, the uh, application of computational modeling and mathematical modeling to language acquisition, loosely called learnability uh, approach, um, became a, a topic of, of great interest just at the time that uh, cognitive science was uh, enjoying a growth spurt because of funding from the Sloan Foundation. Yeah, so I want to use that as a sort of opportunity to transition uh, to, to talking about how you moved from writing academic books like your uh, 1989 Learnability and Cognition, which is mostly intended for your colleagues, uh, into your trade books, which uh, I think it was 1994 you published Language Instinct, which was uh, intended for a general audience. So after you sort of did the the work, like you said, a, a pretty hot topic in the in in the field for learnability and cognition. Did you have a, a crystal clear idea of what was coming next and the transition you were about to make? I had been influenced by um, uh, popular science writers like Stephen Jay Gould, who, who uh, I mentioned earlier in this uh, uh, podcast, who uh, had a, a monthly column in Natural History magazine on uh, uh, evolution and. Um, a variety of themes related to it. Even though he and I came to uh, disagree strongly about a number of things, he was a, a kind of a, was an inspiration. As was Richard Dawkins with uh, with uh, uh, the Selfish Gene and the Blind Watchmaker, Lewis Thomas with Lives of the Cell. Uh, but but I, I had the I, the um, I noticed that uh, there were topics like paleontology, cosmology, evolution that uh, seemed to lend themselves to popular writing, but no one seemed to be doing it for topics that, that people find just as interesting, namely uh, language and more generally cognition. Uh, so I, I kind of nursed the idea of writing for a larger audience for, for uh, quite a while. And then um, in the middle of a, of a kind of a life crisis of what do I, what do, I do next, I, I hit on the idea of a book on uh, language, everything you always wanted to know about language. Uh, at the time, I had no idea uh, how, you know, whether it would be successful, how successful. I was warned by colleagues that uh, who had written books for the general public that they tend to uh, appear in bookstores for about six weeks and then are forgotten forever. Uh, and I, I, I took that chance. Fortunately, when the language instinct uh, came out, it. Uh, it got a lot of attention, and uh, it, it launched me on this parallel career of um, uh, of writing for a wider audience. So, for that book in particular, for the Language Instinct, what is the difference between the sort of book proposal that that the publisher bought and what the final product looked like? Do you remember how how big of a discrepancy was there between what you initially thought everything you wanted to know about language was going to look like, and and how it came out in the actual uh, you know, copy of the of the language instinct. It, it was actually pretty close. I uh, ended up omitting a chapter on uh, language production, on on how we uh, collect our thoughts and uh, put them into um, into word sequences. I did have a chapter on comprehension. I had a chapter on acquisition. I had a chapter on speech. That ended up on the on uh, never being written just because the book got to be too long. But it was um, surprisingly faithful to my my original conception. Hard to believe you writing a book that uh, ended up being on the longer side, but <laughs> there you are. Um, so I want to dig in 
I want to dig into your writing process a little bit. So um, I think my my per like uh, my personal favorite book of yours is probably Sense of Style, just because I'm sort of obsessed with that genre of of, of usage manuals and style guides and that sort of thing. Uh, and to mix it with cognitive science is just absolutely uh, delightful. But uh, mainly, you talk in that book about constructing solid prose, which, uh, you know, is, is of course appropriate for a usage manual. That's, that's the idea of it. But one of the things you don't get into as much is structure in the way that, you know, some other great writers who sort of talk about their, their own writing, um, you know, sort of get into, oh, this is how I structure the overall thing of an essay or a book or an argument in this. I'm thinking maybe, uh, like John McPhee's, uh, recent draft number four and, and Chuck, uh, Palahniuk. Um, they talk about that a lot. Um, so I'd like to hear more about how you think about structuring a book when you're first starting. Uh, how is the, uh, how fleshed out is the outline that you have in front of you? And then how strictly do you sort of adhere to it as, um, as you go along? I, I do have a, um, an outline of a book before I begin to write. And, uh, uh, unlike the language instinct where I stuck to it fairly faithfully in other books, I have, I have had to make major revisions as, uh, so what's an example of that? Um, let's see, in uh, Enlightenment Now, my most recent book, um, I was, uh, the subtitle is The Case for Reason, S uh, S Science, Humanism, and Progress. And uh, I thought that each of those four words would uh, have a section of the book about equal in length. But when I began to write the section on progress, it itself ended up with more than a dozen chapters on uh, subtopics like uh, safety, um, uh, sustenance, uh, longevity, disease, education, and it ended up taking up the, uh, the, the bulk of the book. So I had to uh, reorganize to just accommodate the sheer amount of material uh, and um, uh, the uh, and, and to give separate chapters rather than headings to the different dimensions of progress, partly because uh, one of the reasons that, that, that revision is sometimes called for is that uh, as you start to write, you can anticipate criticism and skepticism. And uh, so to meet the objections, often uh, you end up lengthening a section and uh, you can't, uh, an important aspect of book construction is that the reader has to have a sense of why the bulk of the book is, is where it is. Uh, that if there's page after page after page on some topic, it has to be kind of commensurate with the importance of that topic. And uh, so sometimes the overall goal of the book has to be adjusted to uh, the, the sheer bulk of the material. You don't want a digression that takes up 70% of the book. Uh, then then reader, readers get confused. So for, you mentioned sort of anticipating counter arguments, how much uh, of your anticipation of what readers are going to take issue with or find interesting is just sort of your own um, sort of intuition on it versus how much do you actually go out there and test it out either by talking to colleagues or writing a shorter piece on it? Does, what, is, what does that process look like? A great question. You, you, I think you anticipated the answer, which is the latter. Um, you, one of the reasons that, that, that science and, and scholarship in general have to be social activities is that um, not only are, is no one smart enough to 
uh, think up all the uh, objections, all the um, uh, uh, all the parallel points, all the relevant arguments and, and, and sub-arguments. Uh, but we're all biased to our own narrative, our own polemic. Uh, we all think that we're right beginning, uh, starting out, and it's only when you uh, articulate an idea and you get people starting to attack it they, they, that you yourself realize what its weak spots are. And, and indeed, in uh, every, every book I had, uh, I, I had uh, either tested the ideas by both informally in conversation uh, or in a more structured way in presentations or, or short articles, or I had jumped enough into the debates as they had already played out in the literature that I knew what the bones of contention were. What, what are the hot buttons? What are the third rails? Uh, what are, the, what are the, the, the points that, that are just so surprising and unintuitive that readers are, are not gonna, are gonna get stuck on it unless the, their objections are, are addressed. And there's no way you can uh, plot those out in the theater of the imagination. Uh, you really have to, uh, you know, part, just partly because of cognitive limitations, but partly because of uh, ego, self-serving biases, the delusion that we all have that that we're right that is um, punctured when, when we uh, uh, express the ideas in front of an audience. Yeah. So was there ever um, was yeah was there ever something you were dramatically wrong about? Is there something that comes to mind that when you tested it out, you're like, oh, that that turned out way differently than I thought it would. Well, the um, I, certainly in, in the blank slate, the uh, the modern denial of human nature. I think I underestimated the potential for, uh, for, for political and social improvement. Uh, it was a, a book with a, something of a tragic vision, as, as conceptions of human nature uh, often are. Uh, in fact, I had a chapter on uh, getting back to the, uh, how, how you and I began our conversation uh, today. Cowboy boots. Uh, on the, the political uh, implications of theories of human nature or conversely, the uh, theories of human nature that underlie political philosophies. And I noted that the classical conservatism of, um, uh, the, of um, dating back to the, uh, the reaction to the, 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 the French Revolution uh, pointed to a, a rather dark uh, conception of human nature that were inherently limited in knowledge and uh, uh, virtue, and so we need uh, constraints on our uh, in our institutions to uh, protect us against our own dark side. And I still believe that that, that is true. But I uh, uh, even in the blank slate, I, I noted that human nature also embraces the capacity for solving problems, for um, for overcoming our, our dark side, and in the better angels of our nature, seeing data set after data set that showed human improvement, uh, I, I came up with a, uh, a more, uh, I think, optimistic view of human nature. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's one thing that I'm interested in is obviously your books require a huge amount of research and uh, literature review, particularly in literatures that you may not have already studied prior to the book, though you may have a, a general uh, 
finger on the the pulse of of, of what approximately they're going to say. But so how do you how do you sort of balance the reading versus writing? Do you front load the research and take sort of modest notes on it, and then write all of the actual prose up afterwards, or do you sort of write as you go? What what does that look like for you? Um, I do a, a fair amount of uh, kind of preloading of reading in, in a uh, books on that that bear on the topic I'm going to write about in a uh, a general way. And then before each chapter, I'll then do a, a, a deep dive into the topic of that chapter. Uh, and I generally begin writing the chapter when I find myself um, circling back. That is, as I um, follow up on the, the references in the reference section, um, they end up being references to things that I've already uh, read. And uh, I feel that I kind of have a, a, a decent bird's eye view of the territory and that that's when I begin to write. Yeah, and then uh, on a super low level, what sort of what time of day do you usually write and uh, do you set aside large chunks of time or do you just take whatever you can get? I, I write intensively when I start a book. I um, uh, kind of a state of mild anxiety sets in and it isn't relieved until the book is done. And so I will write uh, uh, you know, day and night seven days a week, I mean, you're taking time out to have, have a life, to exercise and to, uh, to enjoy things with Rebecca and you know, do things that I have to do. But I like summers and Januaries and sabbaticals when I can just uh, motor on and, uh, and just write and write and write. Yeah. Um, and then so for your, for your current book, um, what came first, uh, the the topic, the argument, a sort of observation, um, and and how much has I know you're probably uh, quite a ways through it now. How is how has the the idea sort of evolved during the process? Well, I recently switched the topic to, of my uh, immediately um, uh, forthcoming book. I was uh, going to write a book closely related to my current research on the uh, psychology of common knowledge, common knowledge in the technical game theoretic and logician sense of um, knowing something, knowing that uh, you know it, you knowing that I know it, knowing that you know that I know that you know it uh, ad infinitum. Uh, That's a a state of knowledge that's distinct from two parties merely knowing something. And uh, I've been exploring the ways in which that the the difference between common knowledge and mere shared knowledge governs our our language, our social life, our institutions. But uh, and I'm I'm still planning to write that book. The tentative title is uh, "Don't Go There: Common Knowledge and the Science of uh, Hypocrisy, Outrage, uh, Civility, and Taboo." But I was. Uh, Kind of derailed by the experience of teaching a course this over the past few months in Harvard's general education program on rationality, where I uh, review the, the the tools of rationality, the uh, bits of logic and mathematics that uh, that many cognitive psychologists take for granted and use as a benchmark against which to compare human irrationality, things like uh, Bayesian reasoning, logical logic signal detection theory, game theory, rational choice theory, what we call normative models, that is how we ought to reason, Um, descriptive models, that is psychological theories of how the human mind uh, actually does work, which often diverges in systematic ways from these normative models, 
and their applications to current issues. Uh, are, are we dealing with uh, crime or climate change or government policy or philanthropy in uh, the, 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 uh, the most rational way or is human irrationality uh, derailing our, the pursuit of our goals? Anyway, the, I put the lectures online and uh, they became so, uh, attracted so much interest that a number of people said we, we could really use a book on this. And indeed, there is no book that I know of that combines the psychology of reasoning with the with a tutorials on the tools of reasoning, such as signal detection and analysis and um, Bayesian theory, correlation and causation, that I decided to switch um, the topic of my next book to rationality. That sounds very pressing. I, uh, I, I, I am very interested to see how that goes. And it's, that's, that's fascinating given what we were just talking about a couple minutes ago about testing out the ideas that you're working on in a book and that you sort of let a bottom-up process of what people seem to uh, respond to, uh, not dictate, but influence uh, the, the topic that you are going to delve into for your next title. Indeed. And uh, in, in this case, this would be the, the closest um, uh, back and forth yet between teaching and writing, although that, that always has been a, a, a big driver of my uh, popular writing, that, that very often I will take material that I've used in uh, lectures and making the basis of a chapter in a popular book, or vice versa. I'll write a book and then uh, use it as the basis of a course. In fact, for, for uh, 24 years, I've taught introductory psychology, first at MIT, then at Harvard, based in, in good part on uh, the uh, the, the narrative of how the mind works, the, the topics, the examples, the, uh, the order of presentation. Uh, in this case, it's going to go the other way around, where the course comes first and the book comes second. But, but there's a systematic reason, and that is that you and I were talking before about the challenge of writing for a, a general audience, that is, uh, crossing over from uh, academic peers to a, a more general, intellectually curious public. And that challenge overlaps a lot with the challenge of teaching, because the, the key in both cases is to uh, <clears throat> anticipate the cognitive state of your, your readers or students, to treat them with the respect of uh, idealizing them as being as intelligent, as curious as you are, but just not knowing something that you happen to know. And uh, I have a chapter in the sense of style uh, taken from uh, Mark Turner and, uh, and, and Francois uh, Thomas, uh, arguing that the most effective nonfiction prose style, which they call classic prose, is based on a metaphor or a, a mental model of the writer and the reader, consisting of the writer seeing something in the world that the reader has not yet noticed, orienting the reader so that he or she can see it for, uh, for himself or herself, uh, and using conversation as the medium to orient that gaze. That's a, a mental model that, that uh, organizes the principles of, of lively and clear and effective prose uh, for, a, for a wide audience. But it's the same mental model, I think, that, that ought to be applied in teaching, that is, your students are not stupid, they are uh, curious, they're sophisticated, but they haven't seen something that, that you have seen. And your task is to point it out to them so they can see it with their own eyes. 
So with that shared mental model, I find that the um, transfer from teaching to writing and, and uh, back is natural. Great. So there's a couple more questions that I want to ask you before we wrap up here. And uh, the first is sort of on the, uh, I want to broach the idea of, of being controversial. And so there's something I think a lot of people sort of misunderstand about people like you, which is that essentially, uh, I'd say the presence of haters uh, is not a negative signal. And most people sort of assume that it is. But the fact that there's this, you know, sizable population of people out there who push back against your work and your arguments uh, and, you know, not infrequently take shots at you as a person, um, I think what people misunderstand about that is that if you're going to say almost anything worthwhile, you're going to have people who disagree with you. Um, And so the presence of these haters is not necessarily a negative signal, but almost a signal that what you're saying is, is worth disagreeing with. Um, and I think, uh, you know, people, especially sort of younger scholars, think that if people are pushing back a lot against what you're saying, that must indicate that you're doing something wrong or that uh, you have failed to, you know, do some important aspect of the process. So what, how, do, how do you think about all of that in terms of your own work and the, um, you know, controversy that engenders and, and when people try to give severe pushback? Yeah, there is. Um, I, I have lived a, a life of taking controversial positions, um, and it is uh, natural and to be expected because no one is brilliant enough to figure everything everything out on, on their own. Uh, no one's wise enough. No one is disinterested enough. Um, we uh, approach truth as a community by uh, broaching ideas, uh, criticizing them, and seeing which ideas survive in the, uh, in the crucible of, of uh, de- open debate. Uh, and I've uh, been involved in controversies on the unlikeliest of topics, like uh, irregular verbs and mental images. Music as auditory cheesecake. Whether music is a Darwinian adaptation that increased the number of babies uh, that, that our ancestors had if they made music. Uh, yes, and that, that was probably the uh, least anticipated uh, but fiercest controversy that I uh, blundered into. Uh, what is, and and that's, all, that's all good. I think what's perhaps not so healthy is uh, a, uh, a pair of developments. They're not new, but I think they've been amplified in the, in the past few years of uh, treating disagreement as a sign of... Uh, of, of for, for moral condemnation, of trying to uh, uh, imply that, uh, that that someone is a uh, is uh, uh, evil if they uh, if they challenge some uh, piety, uh, that I think has been somewhat uh, um, amplified by social media, where anyone can can take a shot, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, under the cloak of anonymity or, or uh, semi-anonymity uh, outside of the, uh, the, the realm of, of uh, gatekeepers who try to keep dialogue uh, civil, uh, combined with a, a, an attitude sometimes called you know, social justice warfare or, or, or wokeness, where uh, particular opinions are, uh, are, are uh, become the, the uh, uh, the topic of, of moral crusades, where uh, it is intolerable if someone 
uh, disagrees from uh, with the with a a, a a standard piety or dogma, and, uh, and so there's a lot of um, uh, sliming of uh, moral condemnation that is not uh, not healthy. Whereas disagreement and, and debate are uh, essential. Sure. So there's one last thing I want to sneak in here, which is uh, I'm just curious to know. Uh, what advice do you find yourself most commonly giving to your students? And I guess sort of by extension, uh, do you think is worthwhile for the consideration of me and other young scholars broadly in psychology, cognitive science, etc.? One of them is, uh, might be surprising, but I, I often have brilliant students who just don't know which of several disciplines to pursue. Uh, should they go into psychology or computer science or philosophy? Uh, and, or within psychology, what, which they pursue. And my advice is to uh, pay attention to what you like doing day to day, what you actually like um, practically getting your hands dirty with. Do you like uh, testing babies? Do you like writing code? Do you like proving theorems? Do you like sitting in a library and doing a lot of research? Do you like uh, verbal uh, the construction of verbal arguments. Do you like um, analyzing data? Uh, uh, do you like uh, um, analyzing data sets? Uh, and that because the intellectual topic, be it language or imagery or intelligence or development or social relations, can be studied in, uh, in, in, um, with many methodologies, but it's your success as a scientist or scholar is going to depend on doing what is valued in your subdiscipline. And academics are still highly parochial when it comes to methods. Uh, to succeed in sociology, you've got to do what sociologists do, and so on for, for psychology and its various branches. So, for example, in psychology, uh, it's virtually impossible to have a career unless you don't, uh, unless you, you uh, uh, do experiments. Um, and that's just uh, a fact. It doesn't mean that experiments are the only way to understand the mind, but that's the coin of the realm and that's what gets you jobs and gets you uh, promoted and, uh, and tenure and so on. So there should be a harmony between how you like to spend your time uh, and what is going to be valued in, in your field. So that, that's a, a, so decide on a discipline and a, and a sub-discipline in terms of how you like to uh, while away your hours. Uh, which actual activity. Uh, another advice, piece of advice I give is to, um, to, to cultivate a, uh, a nose for what are uh, topics that the, the field is finding uh, exciting, interesting, new. What are the, uh, the, the growth areas? The uh, areas in which a department is going to say, oh my God, to compete, we better hire a person in X and uh, get a sense of what the X is. And uh, that is not just, not just makes it all more fun because you're, you're in the thick of things, but it also makes you more employable. Love it. Well, uh, that's great. Steve, this has been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Pleasure's been mine. Thanks so much, Cody, for having me. All right. Bye. Good luck to you. Thank you. Bye. That was my conversation with Steven Pinker. I hope you enjoyed. Um, I thought there was a lot of fascinating stuff in there. Certainly one of the difficult things about interviewing Steven Pinker is that he gets interviewed so much. 
that it is difficult to present him with a question that actually requires him to 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 say something that he doesn't already have a sort of pretty well um you know not canned answer but a, a, like a well polished answer that he's given to lots of interviewers before and so you know i tried to get into a few of those things i tried to throw him a couple if not curveball, at least non-standard uh, questions at the beginning. And then uh, I thought we got into a, a, a pretty good amount of nice stuff um, in his, uh, in, in, sort of in his early graduate school time. And, you know, the thing about, another thing about him that makes him difficult to, to interview is that there's this thing, and if you read a lot of his books, you will have noticed this in the conversation, which is that if you ask him a question, which he has already addressed in writing, and he has addressed the vast amount of, you know, logically possible questions that, it's, you know, the, that one could conceivably ask, um, he's basically able to recite chapter and verse his um, passage that he wrote. And so there's, there's, several, there's several different uh, times in which uh, I, I sort of noticed that occurring throughout this. And, uh, you know, of, of, of course, uh, the ideal thing as an interview would be to, to ask him something and be like, uh, you know, like, oh, gee, wow, I, I mean, we broke some new ground here. And uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think that uh, I, th there was uh, a thing that's a very difficult thing to do with, uh, with Pinker. And uh, I, I think that we got partway there, though probably not uh, completely uh, breaking past that, uh, you know, sort of really well-polished uh, veneer. But um, it was interesting, I think, especially to hear in his grad school days about being uncertain about what he was doing. Um, certainly, you would not think of that sort of equivocation or uncertainty as defining any aspect of, of Pinker and his work now, sort of uh, in, its, in its fruition. But uh, so it's, I think it's interesting and instructive and encouraging to know that he was not always sure about um, everything, particularly in his career, what exactly he should be working on and uh, whether or not all of it was going to work out. And certainly that's a fear that uh, a lot of people face today, uh, especially in academia, but certainly everywhere um, when you're trying to establish yourself in a new domain. And if even Steven Pinker can... Uh, feel uncertain about his prospects, then, well, uh, I think it's fair to say that the rest of us are not only justified, but, you know, can take uh, a, a sense of encouragement from that, that, that um, uh, wherever you're at now, you can get to a, a place of, of working it out in a, in a very big way. And uh, so I hope that you uh, got something out of this conversation that you enjoyed it. Uh, I really enjoyed having it, and uh, it was a huge honor to have Steve on. Um, and uh, if you want to connect with him, you can do so on Twitter. Uh, of course, he's got all of his books. Uh, keep an eye out for the new one coming out. That sounds very interesting. I, I remember um, hearing about it when he was sort of planning the common knowledge deal, and it's fun to hear that he's now sort of transitioned to rationality. They both sound very interesting. They both sound like a little bit more of a return to classic cognitive science and psychological issues, more so than his recent books, which have been about uh, trends in society and, and you know there's these big questions about is the world getting better and all that sort of stuff, which is, of course, uh, interesting and controversial, that sort of stuff, but not necessarily core um, you know, classic cognition questions 
like something like common knowledge, something like rationality, uh, those are sort of going to, uh, I'm, I'm sure, return to in a big way. And then if you want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter. You can, do th uh, you can, you can also do so on my newsletter, which you can find and subscribe at um, on my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. And then, uh, of course, you can subscribe to Cognitive Revolution if you're enjoying the show. Uh, we've got a lot of great shows coming up, which I'm very excited about. And, um, yeah, thank you for taking the time to listen. And I will see you back here next week for another episode of Cognitive Revolution.